2.9%, New York State's positivity rate for COVID-19 on November 10, 2020. New York State was the early epicenter of the virus, and to date, there have been more than 541,000 cases and 33,000 deaths. New cases started to decline in April and remained relatively low through the summer, as the pandemic began to ravage other states. However, as many public health experts projected, cases are beginning to rise here in New York again, even as economic activity remains partially restricted. What awaits us this fall? In this episode of What's the Data Point, one of the nation's foremost public health experts, Dr. Thomas Frieden, offers a clear explanation of what we now know about the virus, the most comprehensive approach for how to best counter its rise, what the prospects are for a vaccine, and even how good the ventilation is on the subway. This is a focused and smart conversation between Dr. Frieden and CBC President Andrew Ryan that occurred at the end of October. After you listen, you'll have a better idea of what makes sense for your Thanksgiving plans and for reopening your office. Ben and I will be back with another episode soon. Send us your thoughts for future episodes on Twitter at TweetBenMax and at Maria Dulis, and check out our websites for the latest news and fiscal analysis, GothamGazette.com and CBCNY.org. Stay well, New York. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. I'm Andrew Ryan, President of the Citizens Budget Commission. We want to welcome our trustees and thank you very much for your support throughout, you know, always uh, supporting CBC, but especially during this important time where our work is more important, critical than ever, and your support is even more important. Um, We want to welcome your guests and other guest leaders of New York City and the business community, nonprofit community, um, to a very special session today. Um, perhaps not what one is, expects as our standard session. People think of the CBC, our work on finances and services of New York City, state, the MTA, certainly during this fiscal crisis. But we need to remember that our North Star is how to ensure that New York remains a thriving, competitive, dynamic place where people want to stay, they want to live, they want to work. Businesses want to come here, start, people want to start start a business, grow a business. And we know nothing is more fundamental to doing that right now than addressing this pandemic that has racked our city, our region, our state, our um, nation, and frankly, the world for the last nine months. We think about the interrelationship between the um, controlling the virus and our economy as they are inexorably linked. Um, today, we wake up to this the news that um, the U.S. is seeing 75,000 plus new cases a day, that we have uh, 1,000 deaths a day. We see globally um, France, uh, Germany, and Switzerland um, locking down the two, two of the countries for a month, um, locking down more, and we'll talk more about this. We see our economy in the second quarter nationally growing like almost never before in the last 50 years, yet still our GDP running 3.5% below what it was before we started the pandemic. So it's really an important time. And how we control this virus is not an easy thing to do and often gets too caught up in politics, but we're fortunate enough today to have um, my friend, Dr. Tom Frieden with us to help us understand with us, understand, help us understand the latest in the science, what we know, and frankly, what we don't know, what are the best practices and what we're still learning and how we can do that. So Tom and I will talk for around 20, 25 minutes, and then we'll answer. he will answer questions coming from you, the audience. Thank you, many of you who sent questions ahead of time. So those are queued up. 
Um, but please feel free to use the QA function in Zoom to type in questions, and we'll try to get to as many as possible. Um, let me just tell you a little about Tom Frieden, besides the fact that I had the honor of working with him for 10 and a half years, and I thank him for that, some of the best years of my life that I got to contribute to amazing work. But Tom is now president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, an initiative to prevent epidemics and cardiovascular diseases that he launched um, in 2017, accelerating progress to a world free of artificial trans fats, expanding treatment of high blood pressure, and advancing progress to reduce sodium consumption. And really importantly, and especially now, it's all recognizable, um, improving the infectious disease readiness in more than 20 countries. Nothing is more important than that as we learn today. And he's really pivoted his work this, this year to provide intensive support to communities and countries combating the pandemic. Before that, he was director of the Centers for Disease Control from 2009 to 17, where he fought the Ebola epidemic and launched an initiative to prevent, that will prevent uh, half a million heart attacks and strokes. He was New York City Health Commissioner before that from 2002 to 2009, during which life expectancy increased three years. He prevented 100,000 deaths from smoking, which was not his first time at the health department, where he, because earlier from 90 to 96, he, um, he led the efforts to combat the multi-drug resistant TB outbreak, first as a CDC epidemic intelligence service officer and then as assistant commissioner before WHO tapped him to control TB in India. So he is a man very familiar with uh, um, uh, fighting communicable diseases and one of the few in public health to both work on communicable and chronic diseases. He's a leader in the nation and someone who I deeply respect, not only as a public health leader, but as a public servant of incredible integrity and focus, and it was an honor to work with him. He um, has too many degrees, honorary degrees and, and awards to, to mention, but I will say he trained here in New York at Columbia with his medical degree at the College of Physicians and Surgeons, his master's in public health at uh, Mailman School for Public Health at Columbia, and did his infectious disease fellowship at Yale. I'll stop with that and introduce my our, our guest and, and our friend, Tom Frieden. Thank you, Tom, for taking your time out of your very busy schedule. Great to be with you, Andrew, and uh, to be with your group here and uh, those who care about New York. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, thanks, thanks. You know, we want to talk about the pandemic and how to fight it best, and we want to talk about what the next 18 months looks like. Um, many of the questions I, I got were about how we're doing and what the, the future looks like, but let's start with the basics on the clinical knowledge. Um, you know, what is our state of current clinical knowledge? What does that mean to our activities? Specifically, how is the virus transmitted? We've heard about droplets and aerosolized. And what does that mean for what kind of masks we wear, when we wear it? And what does it mean for indoor and outdoor activities? That type of act, um, start would be great. Right. So starting with the basics, this is a virus that is spread by the respiratory route. Uh, that means that it's going to invade your body through the mucous membranes of your mouth, nose, maybe eyes, lungs. And it's going to get there one way or another. There's been a lot of confusion about airborne and what that means and droplet versus aerosol. And I'll just tell you my read of the data is we really don't know. There are a few things we know for certain. One is that in so-called super spreading events, there can be spread from far more than six feet. So yes, in a, a dance studio, in a crowded bar where people are shouting, in a choir, there are a, a lot of aerosolized particles and those can remain in the air 
for probably a couple of hours in poorly ventilated spaces. However, what we're also seeing is that most people are probably infected by talking with someone or being within six feet of someone. It can be for a very brief time. It can be for a few minutes. One of the things that we have to get past are false dichotomies, droplet versus aerosol. There isn't a bright line. There are bigger droplets and smaller droplets, and the smaller droplets last longer. And six feet is not a magical distance beyond which the virus suddenly says, oh, a border, I won't go beyond that. So what we're looking for really is a balance, understanding risk and benefit, understanding that we want to be safer, but that fully safe is uh, a false uh, effort. But there are a lot of things that we can do to make a difference. And one of them really is masking. And it's very interesting. I was just reading a very misguided article about this. Uh, so it's top of mind. But if you look back to what we've learned about masks and what we've learned about COVID, most infectious diseases spread more the sicker you are. So in the original SARS outbreak in 2003, people who were in intensive care units, they were desperately ill, spewed huge quantities of the virus. People who were really sick in a hotel spewed huge quantities of, a vi of the virus. In contrast, and, and what you see if you, if you made a graph would be time and viral load would just go up. And what's really striking with COVID is that it's the exact opposite. It goes down. And we didn't know that until March, really. Um, and so it wasn't until March, early April that it became clear that this is really different, that a lot of the spread in COVID is in the first uh, couple of days of illness or even a couple of days before you're ill or from people who aren't sick at all. And that has huge implications. Um, it means that we have to work much, much faster for isolation and contact tracing. It means that masks have a very important role. Now you ask about what masks? Quite frankly, uh, in hospitals, we should be using N95s. And for uh, out of hospitals, surgical masks are reliably better than cloth masks. Uh, and what happened was we conflated not having enough of something with what would be recommended. And really, I think we should have been very clear from day one, N95s in hospitals and surgical masks out of hospitals. Now, we don't have enough of them. That's a, an inexcusable federal failure. Uh, it should have been solved by now. It hasn't been. Uh, so cloth masks are useful, not uh, wool, not bandanas. Um, any mask is better than none. Three plies is good. Tight fit is important. I'll stop there. Oh, but most important is that they're worn. Now, the question also is when to wear them. Yes. Indoors is really important. Indoors is really important. Out of doors is much safer. And yet, you know, you are, New York's really crowded. Um, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole here of some really uh, old data. It has to do, and it's relevant, believe me, even though I, I like to bring tobacco control into every conversation, this is truly relevant. It has to do with a, a, a remarkable study done of what's called cotinine which is a marker of tobacco use or exposure. And what was really striking to me about this study was that we did it in New York. We were the first community in the US to do this 
other than a national study, Andrew was very involved in it. And what it showed was that non-smokers in New York City were more likely, more likely to be exposed to secondhand smoke than non-smokers elsewhere in the country, despite the fact that New York City had much stronger secondhand smoke laws. And I know why that is. When I lived in Atlanta for eight years, I never got smoked on. In New York City, you walk down the street, you get smoked on. The same is true for COVID. Think of uh, the COVID cloud as in some ways like secondhand smoke. So with a crowded environment like New York City, it makes sense to wear masks outside unless COVID has really been crushed to low levels. Thank you. Um, there are many rabbit holes I'd love to go on, but before we move to how we're addressing the pandemic, I'd love to um, ask what's on many people's minds about Thanksgiving. Holidays coming up. Some people are traveling, some people aren't. Inside, outside, it's kind of cold. My parents are elderly. My mother has told me, she's like, it's very cold. I was like, we'll be outside and it'll be lunch. What do you recommend us do? It's a really tough one. Uh, again, it's a question of risks and benefits and what you're comfortable with, but you also have to recognize you're not only risking yourself and your family, you're risking others if there's spread. What we're seeing all around the country is spread in social events. Colleges came back and they're having spread, but not in academic settings, in fraternities and sororities, even in sporting events, people are having some spread, but it's mostly in the locker room or pregame or postgame um, socializing. Um, Thanksgiving and the holidays are a big challenge. What we've heard from all around the country are so-called barbecue clusters. Now, I was kind of puzzled by that because a barbecue is outside usually, and so you wouldn't really expect to have a cluster. But it's not only outside. People come inside. Um, and it really, if you think of an equation, it's the amount of time, the number of people, the number of places they come from, the prevalence of COVID in those places, the proportion wearing masks, the volume of speech, really important, actually. Singing and shouting, exponentially more viral spread than talking quietly. Um, so I'll tell you that... Um, in a lot of families, this is a tough discussion. Uh, Tony Fauci has made very clear his kids aren't coming to visit. And part of that is they can't really get there safely. Um, what we're doing in my family is those of us who can will quarantine for 14 days before Thanksgiving. We'll then travel safely to a, a congregating place and have a very small Thanksgiving. Most of those of us who usually get together on Thanksgiving won't be there. And um, we're still looking at, you know, gee, remember, you're the lowest common denominator. So if one person is unsafe, that whole bubble is unsafe. So that's, uh, that's challenging. That, that also means, you know, in, in one part of our extended family, the, the daughter is not completely quarantining, understandably, she's a college kid. The parents can't really come because they're in contact with the daughter. So you really have to think of the different connections. And if I understand the quarantine for 14 days, if I have a negative test close before that and I haven't quarantined, how safe should I feel? Uh, test is not a get out of quarantine free card. Um, testing is an important component of a comprehensive response, but it doesn't replace safety measures. You can test negative in the morning and be highly infectious in the afternoon. So I, I really discourage people to use testing as a way to kind of 
get into Thanksgiving free. Um, uh, Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a very sobering description and I, I appreciate it. And I, frankly, I appreciate the details since many of us are asking these questions right now. This has come up in, in our family as well. And uh, someone has to have a contact with others and then thought, well, can I just test three or five days later? Well, no, not really. Um, now, again, there's the question of risk. So let's suppose you have a potential exposure. If your risk is 10% of getting infected, after 10 days, 90% of that risk will be gone. So you're down to 1%. So you can think of that kind of calculation. And you can also think of how to reduce risk. Um, if everyone is wearing masks, if you increase ventilation, if you reduce the time, if you re reduce the volume, if you reduce the number of people, all really important uh, ways of reducing risk. So we've talked on the individual. Let's step back to the more societal, global, e economic, and health. What I've heard you talk about boxing it in. Talk about the best um, public response strategies um, to mitigating the pandemic. Let me explain how I'm thinking about this now. And it's hard to explain to people. First off, it's, un it's really important to emphasize there's no magic ending to this pandemic. There's no fairy tale ending, not even with a vaccine. Uh, it's, it's going to be here for a long time. And a lot is unpredictable. We don't know how treatments and vaccines will develop. We don't know uh, whether there will be some viral changes uh, in the vaccine. So there's, there's a lot that's uh, happening. Um, but I think of chipping away at pandemic risk there are lots of different metaphors for this. There's a Swiss cheese graphic that's been floating around that's pretty good that shows you know, all of the different layers of protection you need because each of those layers has some holes in it. It's even got a, a mouse eating larger holes in those cheese. That, that's uh, misinformation or mouse information is, is uh, increasing the, the, the porousness of those tools. But what, what I find maybe helpful is to think of a one-two punch. One is to knock cases down. And that means general approaches that are going to drive down infections. That means extensive mask wearing. That means washing hands. And we didn't get into it earlier. I do think contaminated surfaces are kind of uh, getting neglected here. They're important. Elevator buttons, doorknobs that lots of people touch. If you touch them, then you touch your face, nose, mouth, eyes you can get infected. And I think we, we kind of pendulum, oh, it's all aerosol. Oh, it's none of it is fomite. It's still a good idea to wash your hands regularly. It doesn't mean you have to sanitize your groceries, but it does mean you have to take sensible measures. I'll tell Nicole about that. So the, the, um, the, the, the general, the, the, the punch one of the one-two punch are the general measures. And that includes reducing risky indoor exposures, the three W's, wear a mask, watch your distance, wash your hands. These are general things. And what you'd like to do is get cases down to where you get a high enough proportion that you can then box the virus in with strategic testing, rapid isolation, complete contact tracing, and supportive quarantine. It's hard. It's really hard. And yet they're doing it in Germany, in Iceland, in Singapore, in Rwanda, in Senegal, in Ethiopia, in Nigeria but not really anywhere very well in the U.S. And that means it's, it, it's not that people aren't trying. It's not that they are not doing a lot of good work. You've got to get tests. You can, first off, you have to get people going in for tests as soon as they feel symptoms. 
Second, you have to have tests coming back within hours or a day. Third, you have to be interviewing people within hours. Fourth, you have to make sure they're isolated and stay isolated quickly after they get symptoms. All over the country, we're hearing about people who felt bad, but they went into work anyway and clustered. Fifth, you've got to make sure that contacts are notified right away. And sixth, you've got to make sure that they quarantine in ways that are supportive. Uh, best practice around the world, give them money, give them laundry services, give them uh, uh, telemedicine services, give them food delivery. You tell someone to stay home, how am I going to get my laundry done? How am I going to get food? They're not going to do it. You, you have to make isolation and quarantine so attractive that people want to get into them, not out of them. Uh, understood. Um, New York State's done pretty well relative to the country after the initial um, um, hit, which was obviously devastating to so many of us and so many of us personally. Um, we can't be a New Yorker without knowing someone personally affected. Um, what We hear a lot about testing, and there's a lot of focus on testing. You said strategic testing. I guess there's more to say. I haven't heard that much about contact tracing. How do we know that we're doing it well enough, both having the capacity and doing it quick enough? Because I get a feeling it is a bit of a neglected um, child here, and it's critically important. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, and um, a, couple, a few months ago, we released a report on 15 essential indicators. And there wasn't a state in the country reporting most of them or, or even uh, half of them, not one. And uh, as we've thought over the last few months, there are a few of them that are particularly important. What proportion of your cases do you know the source of? How long was it between when someone got sick and when they got isolated? What proportion of your cases arose from quarantined contacts? And I think co contact tracing is not very familiar in the US. It's very familiar to public health departments, but not to people generally. And it's an art and a science. It's a combination of detective work, counseling, uh, being uh, medically expert, socially expert, uh, being able to find people, having empathy, building trust, providing services. It's not simple. It's not a call center. It's a very comprehensive approach. And I think uh, that's being learned uh, steadily and uh, all over the country. Now, I do think the state of New York has done a very impressive job in, uh, in, for many months in terms of both messaging and actions and how to uh, balance economic reopening with controlling the virus, how to surge in when you have a cluster. Um, and uh, the challenge there is always going to be engaging with communities and supporting patients. And... Um, I haven't seen much data about the, the clusters in New York City recently. I uh, haven't seen the kind of data that, that we wish we would see from all over the country. Um, but um, I know people are working hard and it's a really tough problem. It's a challenge to make that kind of connection with the community. Um, I guess the other thing to say is that the, the, the patients and the contacts really have to be the VIPs of the program. And that's not just a rhetorical issue. That's in the self-interest of all of us. Uh, basically, if we don't want, in New York City, 8.3 million people to have to essentially quarantine, we need to be really good at finding the people who do really need to be quarantined and supporting them to do it so that all of us don't have to. 
uh, they're providing a service and they should be compensated and supported uh, to do that. The other really important point is this obsession with case counts is, is drives me a little crazy. Uh, best estimate is that nationally, we only detect about one out of five cases. So out of five infections, we're only finding one. So those 80,000 infections the other day, those were actually a fifth of the 400,000 that occurred. Now, um, if we're only finding a fifth and then we're contact, contact tracing only some of those and only some of those effectively, the impact of the box it in part of the one-two punch is pretty low. But if you get the cases down lower and the testing up higher, then you can detect a third, a half, or even more of all the infections and combine that with doing a really good job on contact tracing, isolation, quarantine, and you can keep cases down at a low level. I think what we're seeing in, in parts of Europe is places that just had the, the virus simmering along had a rapid repeat explosion when they opened back up. Places that really crushed the curve with really good general measures and the one-two punch of the contact tracing, isolation and finding and stopping, they do really well. I've been so impressed with Singapore. Singapore focuses on like three patients. We couldn't find where it came from. So they're really worried as opposed to looking at the number of people detected in large outbreaks uh, that they're controlling. So that idea of understanding where your epidemic in your community and taking appropriate steps. Well, as I learned from you, as, a, as you, you, you're from your TV days, having that line list and taking care of your patients and you want to get to that point. Let's talk for a second about the future and what the next 18 months look like. And I'll start maybe not with the general question, but let's talk about the uh, A vaccine. How, you know, what is the time frame? How do we know it's credible coming out of the federal government? What do we think about efficacy? What does that picture look like? We don't know. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves with vaccine uh, wishes and behind where we should be with vaccine planning. Um, the, we don't know that we're going to have safe and effective vaccine. This is the fastest by years there's ever been development of a vaccine. It's brand new technology. We can be guardedly optimistic that a vaccine is going to be effective um, and safe, but we don't know that until the data comes in. And even when it does, it's not going to be a fairy tale ending to the pandemic. It will be one of many tools we can use to drive cases down. Uh, I think what we will see are vaccines rolling out over the course of 2021. Uh, I think we can expect to see some adverse events from some of them. They may or may not be causal, but that's going to cause concerns. And so we need to have complete transparency about that. We're going to need to think carefully about staff of nursing homes. If we do have a safe, safe and effective vaccine, that's the one population group that might be appropriate to mandate vaccination for. Um, we're also going to need to prioritize healthcare workers for vaccination, but um, also we'll need to know what the vaccine is like. Does it work for older people? If it's effective for older people, we'll want to prioritize them also. If it's not, it doesn't make sense to do that. And the federal government has failed to provide resources to state and local governments all around the country to do really in-depth planning. We have to engage with community groups. There's huge vaccine suspicion in um, African-American black communities all over the US. I keep hearing, I'm not taking that Trump vaccine. And that's a terrible phenomenon. Uh, this a vaccine 
if and when it becomes available, will be a great scientific achievement. And we need to make sure that we don't undermine the trust that's needed to get it delivered because a vaccine doesn't do any good. A vaccination program does. Good distinction, important distinction, not to box you in. Um, but, so are you saying that 2021, we shouldn't expect a vaccine to have a major impact on our ability to um, reopen the economy and our social and economic activity? Is that fair to say? I don't know. I, we'll have to see. Uh, suppose we get a really effective vaccine. It's available. People take it. It seems to be resulting in a take or a good vaccine response that's durable. I think in that kind of context, over the course of 2021, you would see a pretty steady recovery. You might see things like immunity passports or vaccination certificates uh, facilitating travel uh, around the world and resuming some of uh, some business. Uh, but just uh, simple math, optimistically, a vaccine might be 70% effective and 70% of people might take it. That's a 49% protection rate societally. So it's not going to make this magically go away. And society is segregated and inhomogeneous. So there will always be pockets with the potential for large explosive outbreaks. So what would you recommend? It's interesting. We, we focus on right now, New York City is an economy that is set up to really be harmed and challenged through this period. Tourism, entertainment, face-to-face -face interaction, it's what makes New York great and it's what is most challenging right now. Are there steps we can be taking to figure out to do, and lessons learned from other places to reopen our economy better? Right now we focus on things we can't do. On the other side, could we flip the lens, getting the public health professionals, the engineers and the business leaders together to figure out how can we actually open a restaurant at whatever capacity? How can we change the air circulation and filtration system? Are there things we should be doing to open up more effectively? It's a, it's a very challenging question. First off, I think we've learned a lot. Outdoors, great. More of it, the better. Unfortunately, it's pretty cold out there. Um, second, uh, there are a lot of workplaces that can open with a reasonable degree of safety. Um, you need to not have common snack areas, you need to clean well, you need to have masking, but fundamentally workplaces are not the problem and they're a potential to bring people back. Uh, but in, a, in an adjusted way, understanding that even testing isn't gonna make it safe for you not to be there, to be there without a mask. Um, I think uh, shopping, is something what we've learned to do much more safely and it can be done safely with masking. I think delivery and a curbside pickup for people who want it, these are good innovations. There are a lot of pain points though. Restaurants, bars, entertainment, and office space. Office space, I, I'm not an expert in this, but I think not so much because of safety, but because people have suddenly learned, hey, I don't really need that office. I, I mean, Zoom works pretty well, and a lot of people have moved out of the city temporarily or longer term. So I, I do think real estate, entertainment, tourism, uh, this is gonna be a very, very tough time for New York City. On restaurants, first off, bars are a particular problem because people talk louder, uh, they linger longer, they come from more places, and they don't wear masks. 
uh, all over the country, what we're seeing is bars redefining themselves as restaurants. So um, this, this is challenging. Um, I, I thought of one example um, when I was at CDC in, and um, in New York for, for some regulated facilities, we use a, a star approach. You know, jump this high, you get five stars, four stars, three stars, two stars, one star. It's a little softer than a, you know, grading or a red, yellow, green. Maybe we could figure out some way to have a five-star approach to restaurants, which might include plexiglass barriers, might include assurance that everyone is wearing a mask, might include ways to try to quiet things so there isn't loud speech, might include uh, very good uh, protocols in place. So if there is a case, you'll be notified. Four star might be one less than that. And, and then you'd have the market driving people to say, you know, I, I might feel comfortable going out to a five star or four star uh, safety restaurant, but not to a three star or two star. And you might then shift um, because I, I, I worry about our restaurants, 25,000 restaurants in New York City. How many of them are going to survive this? Um, no, it's interesting. It's sort of a health safety rating. I know when we in New York City went to restaurant grading, I would be going out with my friends and they're like, well, it got a C. You're at the health department. Should we go to dinner? I mean, this was a discussion. So you're saying not as you know necessarily firm, but giving that... Um, probably a, a threshold and then ratings and allowing some market. That's very, that's very um, interesting. What about the subways? I commute. I, we have reopened our office on a voluntary basis. It's a wonderful thing. I work certain, certain things I do better in the office and, and I love to support our local businesses, but people both need to feel and be safe on the subways. How, could, how should we be approaching that? I think they've done a good job of increasing masking that has to be kept up. Um, we have to track and increase mask use. Um, it's great they're giving masks out to people not using them. Um, there's actually better ventilation on the subway than, than I think most people would assume. Um, uh, having people waiting long periods of time in compact spaces is obviously challenging. I was just on a call yesterday with Japan, which has, you know, the most crowded subways in the world, they, their subways are less crowded, but they haven't seen it as a problem. I think if we do things together, we can uh, get important parts of our society and economy back. Subways one, schools are another. Uh, we're learning that it is possible to have a, a reasonably uh, good degree of safety in schools. It's going to require accommodations for those who do have underlying conditions or are older. It's going to require innovation, but it's possible. And um, I just want to remind everyone, please feel free to type in your questions. I have a number here, a number already typed in. I've kind of already shifted to that. Um, so Tom, should I just keep on going? Uh, yep, start sure. with your questions. And, and I'll, I'll follow your lead here for a second on schools. Um, can we reopen? be reopening more? It's um, incredibly challenging for students, for teachers, the issue of academic achievement and disparities will only be exacerbated. Yet we've seen um, our, our positivity rate very low in schools. There's some evidence about lower transmission from early childhood. 
what could we be doing and is there a way we could be more aggressive in reopening and, and accelerating face-to-face -face education? Well, um, the, the role of antigen testing in schools has to be sorted through. Um, where there's explosive spread in the community, it's gonna be really hard to keep a school open. Where there's not much spread, it's gonna be fine in most cases. It's in that intermediate kind of low to moderate spread where there may be a role for antigen testing. And we have to sort that out. Uh, but I think the key is to take steps to both protect the people who could get severely ill in schools and to modify what we do in schools. And we issued a report on this a few months ago with eight broad areas that schools could undertake to be safer and, um, and begin uh, more effectively ranging from cohorting or potting to cleaning and ventilation to preparing for cases because they're going to occur and how do you respond to them? And I think um, uh, what we're seeing is that it really is possible to get kids back in school. You have to be concerned, particularly for older kids, about the kind of um, social interactions that go on outside of the academic environment. There are three questions in the in there. Yes, I, I, can, I, I can knock them out quickly if you'd like. Sure. Why don't you start from the bottom and go up? Okay. Um, uh, first off, uh, why, why have case, basically, I won't read them verbatim. I'll just summarize them. Why haven't deaths gone up a lot yet? And basically, several reasons. One, cases go up first, followed by hospitalizations, followed by deaths. So they haven't gone up yet. We have a calculator at Resolve that we've put on our website where we can estimate how many deaths there will be in the next three to four weeks, just based on the actual number of cases and uh, diagnosed so far. And we'll hit a quarter of a million deaths in the US by Thanksgiving, sadly. It's a horrible number. Uh, but the second reason is there is an improvement in outcomes of people who are hospitalized. And part of that is less overwhelmed healthcare systems. Um, and that means, um, you know, if you look at New York City, when things were overwhelmed, results were not good. Also, we've learned how to treat people more effectively. Earlier oxygen, less intubation, positional um, steroids do have a mortality benefit. No other treatment has been shown to have a mortality benefit. Um, Why don't you read Steve's question? Um, Steve, Steve was asking um, about Dr. Fauci. Um, and he has not resigned in protest. I had the honor of meeting him with you when you were testifying together in front of Congress, and that was that was an honor. Why don't you give a little perspective on the on the federal uh, yeah. I mean, you would. I, I know Tony well. We work together closely. We speak regularly. He's a wonderful man. He has tremendous integrity, um, and he's enormously respected by people on both sides of the political aisle. Um, he's a he's a excellent public health researcher. And um, uh, he's dedicated to the work he's doing and to protecting Americans. So I think the decision people in government face generally is, do I keep doing what I can to do as much good as I can, or do I resign in protest? He clearly can do much more good by being there than by leaving. I, heard, I read him say in one interview, I'm 79, I look 45, I feel 35, and when I begin to look my age, I'll retire and write my book. Um, but I think the, the broader issue is we've seen an unprecedented sidelining, undermining attack on science. 
And the result has been uh, devastating for the country. It's meant that we have seen uh, harebrained theories about letting it spread in young people and protecting others uh, become national policy. And it doesn't work that way. What starts in the young doesn't stay in the young. And the vulnerable aren't some tiny sliver of society that can be protected. 3% of American elderly are in nursing homes. 97% are not. And about half of American adults have some underlying condition that increases their risk of severe COVID. And we have no idea what, what long haul COVID is going to bring. Um, I'm going to just... Can I just ask you one, interject one second? Sure. What will it take on this? Because I know this is a concern to you. I know it is to me and frankly many. What will it take to restore the credibility of the Centers for Disease Control? I think basically they have to start speaking directly to the American people from subject matter experts regularly and following the, the principles that CDC created. Be first, be right, be credible, be empathetic give people practical proven things to do. They're also going to have to be frank about things that didn't go well. What went wrong and what are we doing to try to make sure it doesn't go wrong in the future? It comes down to being uh, open, transparent, sincere, and uh, they can do that if they're allowed to. And is there good work still coming out of the CDC? There is, there is. This is one of the painful things. There's a lot of good work coming out. They're putting out important reports in the, their weekly bulletin, what's called the MMWR. Uh, they've got uh, a thousand guidance documents, uh, all but a handful of them are superb. Um, and uh, their website last they were allowed to produce data had been clicked on 1.6 billion times. So Americans are still voting with their clicks here. Okay. Um, Carol asked about when we can go back to Carnegie Hall or the Blue Note, and I'm sure there are others that people might prefer as well. Yeah, um, I don't know. I think uh, distanced with masks, uh, with no um, eating or drinking, uh, maybe not so far away. But as it was before, no time soon, I'm afraid. Um, not unless we're much better at crushing the curve. There's an interesting question from Alex about uh, the relationship between initial exposure dose and infection severity. Um, uh, we, we summarize this actually in our Science Weekly. We have a Science Weekly at Resolve. And the, the data actually surprised me. There's, there's relatively strong evidence that suggests that there may be what's called an inoculum effect. So the more virus you get, the sicker you'll be. Um, it's not certain, but there's some evidence for it. Um, and there is evidence that if you wear a mask and get infected despite wearing the mask, you get a lower inoculum. So there may be cases where everyone's wearing masks and you see a lot more asymptomatic disease and a lot less severity. Um, in Singapore and Taiwan, not only did they control COVID, but they had extraordinarily low death rates. Is that because they had a different strain or because everyone pretty much wore masks. We don't know. And can you tell us, just playing on that, and I didn't ask before, if you have been infected, what kind of, what do we know? What's the science about immunity and reinfection these days? We know reinfection is possible. There's a lot we don't know. You'll read articles about fading antibody responses. Nobody knows what that means. Um, what we do know is that there is some protection and that there is also some reinfection. So the best I can say is some people are protected for some period of time 
after they get an infection to some degree. Um, that's pretty vague, uh, but that's about all we know definitively now. So uh, behavior is nothing we should be doing once you're infected. You don't learn anything that uh, should affect your behavior. I have a friend, doctor in New York, who got infected, and he said he's, he's rooting for antibodies to be effective. And I said, root for it, but don't count on it. Exactly. Um, yeah. So there's been a number of questions I got before, and, and there Amanda asked here about what city and state should be doing and what can we do to expect to prepare for pandemics? It's a hard budget item to prioritize. Um, what should we be expecting thinking to the future? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that at the, at the federal level, there will be uh, substantial funding for preparedness. Uh, we've suggested something with bipartisan support called the Health Defense Operations Budget Designation or HDO. It's a way of having the budget not compete with other parts of the federal budget, and it could be very effective. Um, I think at the state and local level, it's challenging to do this because of how difficult budgets will be. I do want to emphasize one area that's related, and it has to do with primary care. Globally, nationally, statewide, and in New York City, we have failed to create good primary care systems. If you look around the US, you've got places like Kaiser and Geisinger, Mayo Clinic, a couple of places that actually do primary care well, but they're oases in a desert of a healthcare system that's misshapen. It's focused far too much on the hospital sector and far too little on good primary care. And, and that's a problem because we don't have uh, the kind of resources that we need in primary care. So that's an area that I think does need attention. And um, let me just, Andrew, let me just uh, knock through a couple of these that are on the screen. Yes, I was, uh, um, one is from a policy perspective, uh, how can misconceptions and fallacies be addressed to non-science believers? I think regular communication, be first, be right, be credible, um, engaging with people who have legitimate concerns and doubts is very important. And for the tiny proportion that are never going to be convinced, leave them alone. They're not going to be convinced. Engaging just gives them a platform. And tell stories. It's not just about data. Much as Andrew and I would love to show you the data, it's about stories of people and their lives, their children, their parents. That's what moves people. Um, the, the other one on the screen is... Um, how, what's gonna happen if we don't recognize that there is this uh, uh, pandemic? Will we de, de facto head to herd immunity? And, and actually, no. Um, even if we gave up, what would happen was first, we'd have probably a half a million to a million more deaths in the US. That means more people killed by COVID than by every war in the 20th century combined in the US. And second, it wouldn't actually get us there because we don't know how long immunity lasts. There's still going to be pockets with explosive spread. Um, the people getting infected, frankly, are poorer people with essential jobs and healthcare workers. Uh, so you're going to end up with large swaths of the population still susceptible. Um, the, the fact is that we're, we're a discontinuous society. And so even if you got to 60%, Overall, that'll mean 80 to 90% in some places, 
and 20% in other places. And all you need is one case and you're gonna have explosive spread. The only real way for herd immunity to protect us is if we get a safe and effective vaccine and people take it. Um, and a couple of questions that came in before. Is the second wave a thing at all or is it just about compliant behavior? Yeah, so it's um, really first wave, second wave, third wave is very confusing. Basically, we have the omnipresent risk of explosive spread as long as COVID is around. And uh, in the Northeast, including in New York, uh, we've done a good job. And the result of that is we have one-tenth to one-twentieth the COVID that other parts of the country have. But that could change in a matter of weeks if we let down our guard. Someone asked for a little bit more information on antibodies. So just to mention, first off, a lot of the tests out there were very poorly done and very inaccurate. Second, we don't know what they mean. So even if you have antibodies with a good test, we don't know if that's protective. Uh, there's just a lot we don't know yet. So Tom, um, this has been wonderful. Can you let people know how they should follow your work? I follow you in a couple of different ways. I don't know the best effective way, but I've found, um, as always, your information clear and informative and not overselling or underselling, which is frankly part of the challenge in our public debate. Well, our website is preventepidemics.org. Uh, you can sign up for a weekly science update. It's a little wonky, but it's really good. It's kind of the best science information. If you look on the science reviews section of our website, you'll find kind of an encyclopedia of all the tough questions you wondered about COVID going back seven months now. And feel free to follow me on Twitter, Dr. Tom, at Dr. Tom Frieden, or on LinkedIn. Um, uh, every Friday night, I do a Twitter thread that summarizes the epidemiology of COVID over the past week, uh, what we're seeing, what the implications are, and what it means for the future. I started that months ago as a way of kind of rounding up the week, and uh, I continue that now. I appreciate it. So I guess summing up, we should all individually be vigilant and know what we could do to reduce our own risk and, and the risks around us. Um, we hope that the, and we want the government response to be quick and decisive. I think you're saying we need to be rapidly acting. The more we've learned about the science, the, um, the more we know we need to test, trace, isolate, quarantine. And I think a, a theme is to be flexible because we, there is a lot of uncertainty. And what we've seen over the last seven months and what we'll see in, in the future is an evolving science. And, and it's hard to predict where that is, but flexibility is probably the right way. Any last, um, comments you want to make to our friends before? Well, just to end with this, that if you look around the U.S. and around the world, the places that have done the best have been guided by science and public health and have fully supported science and public health. They have less disease, less death, and less economic devastation. And don't let anyone uh, tell you that there's a conflict between health and economics, because what's hurting our economy here is the pandemic, not the control measures. And if we try to just full steam ahead, uh, we're gonna end up one step forward, two step backwards. We can move forward, we can reopen the economy, but we have to do it in a way that's cognizant of the challenges of controlling COVID and not ignoring them. Well, thank you, Dr. Tom Frieden. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to help us understand the uh, pandemic and COVID much better. Great and great to see you again. And thanks uh, to all of you for the work you do to help New York City become a great place. It's still a great place to live and will be 
for the future. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you all for coming. I appreciate your time and your support, and we'll see you soon.